Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And by the end of this year, it's likely a million Australians will have lost their jobs. And it's a reality that is begging for a counterpoint. So this morning, we've asked researcher Heidi Lee from Beyond Zero Emissions to join us to explain how a low-carbon economic recovery could create 1.8 million jobs over the next five years and lead the country out of recession. Um, Beyond Zero Emissions released their plan at the end of last month with a bit of help from their friends and supporters, including Mike Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian and Christiana Figueres, who was the chief architect of the Paris Climate Agreement. And uh, welcome to Triple R, Heidi. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. And um, by design, this is an optimistic framework for Australia and how we can grow jobs and cut emissions. What is the sort of central idea of your million jobs plan? I think here that we are optimistic, but we're quite grounded in that optimism as well. We know that good stimulus or a good response to an economic crisis like this means bringing forward stuff that is already in the pipeline to happen anyway. So our plan really looks at the next five years and brings forward great ideas that are in a a 10 or 15 year kind of pipeline and, and brings forward that to happen in the next five years. So it's all entirely possible. It's all going to happen anyway. We just think it should happen faster. And so, I mean, it's been said that um, the current opportunity, well, well, the current situation with the coronavirus um, does create some opportunities to kind of think of things differently and maybe pursue some policies that might have been, you know, more unlikely in a pre-pandemic world. Is there anything about our current circumstances that you think makes it more likely or that there might be more appetite to pursue some of these policies that you've laid out? Absolutely. And I think a great example of that is when we look at opportunities that we've mapped out like um, massive amounts of home retrofits, where we know right now that people need to reduce the cost of living more than ever. We have a lot of households um, suffering from loss of income. We've got a lot of financial uncertainty ahead. When you look at things like Um, a home retrofit, you're putting people to work immediately, doing work that um, makes our homes better and Australia has some of the worst homes um, in the world. So we can actually put people to work and, and reduce the cost of living in a way that actually pays itself off. So this is a great policy um, area because all we need is a paperwork solution to be able to unlock all these jobs and all these benefits to people who really need it the most. And um, as you highlight, um, many of the ideas in your plan are kind of no-brainers, such as improving building quality, as you say, and you've got you know hundreds of thousands of jobs just in that sector alone. You know, some of these initiatives have been undertaken at the state level and in different parts of the country. What can make them work at the scale needed, do you think, Heidi? Look, this is about aligning policy from the federal to the state down to the local as well. Um, What happens when we get that alignment is that our private sector and private finance will invest with a lot more confidence because they can see that alignment at every level of government. So that there, we've been, obviously, you've seen our our launch and and who supported us on that. So we've got a lot of uh, private finance looking for places to invest right now and Aligning policy all through every level of government is a key to being able to apply that finance to the kinds of solutions that put people back to work straight away and actually put them to work on tasks that modernise the economy, make it low emissions and and give us all that good stuff, a really positive outlook over the next 50 years. And it's not so relevant for local government, but we we have heard that the National Cabinet is set to continue with sort of regular meetings between um, the federal, uh, the Prime Minister and and state and territory counterparts. Does that, is, is that the kind of model that you think would make it easier for some of these initiatives to get sort of, to gain some momentum? 
Look, that's really what we're focusing on over the next uh, five or six weeks, is really making sure that the government has great examples of ready-to-go projects that are exemplars from what we define in our Million Jobs Plan. These are all good examples of what you should do next. So we're really looking for the very best of those and making sure that they are in front of the key decision-makers when it comes to the October budget. That has to happen right now to demonstrate that this is more than just a good idea. This is actually something that you can invest in. And, I mean, we haven't sort of gone to all the aspects of of the plan yet, so let's do that, Heidi, and Heidi's with Beyond Zero Emissions. We're talking about their million jobs plan. Uh, You've sort of summarised summarised the plan into kind of key areas, renewable energy, better buildings, as you've discussed, better transport, manufacturing and land use, so just those high-level areas. How similar or different are the jobs in these areas as you – um, you know, once you research them, are they kind of jobs for all or are they jobs for certain kind of skill sets? Perhaps talk us through it. Yeah, so beyond their emissions, we do a lot of work on transition plans. We look at transitioning whole sectors of the economy and for a long time the solutions that we've been looking for are solutions to um, the mining sector where we, we look at the thermal coal mining jobs and are looking to find equivalents there. So we know that from our research, we know that renewable energy jobs and clean manufacturing jobs are really a, a transition solution to thermal coal jobs. So that is a no-brainer. But they are also they're manufacturing jobs. They're they're heavy industry work, right? So we need to be able to make sure that alongside the um, the initiatives and the sectors that you described, we're also including a whole chapter that's just looking at training and education and research, because we know that we need to have apprentice programs that that provide broader opportunities for for women, for people with different types of abilities to get into the workforce. So looking at things like land regeneration, we have a 90% um, recycling target um, in in the um, plan. Those types of initiatives there, they provide a diversity of, of jobs and opportunities for people to work. So as well as getting a more diverse workforce into construction, you can also look at providing that broader diversity of jobs that are, are still making things. They're still making this better world and this modern economy that we're talking about. And, uh, I mean, we know that particularly in, in areas that have been uh, reliant on, on fossil fuels, there's been, you know, really kind of strong campaigns and, and debates waged over jobs versus environmental protection and, and that sort of thing. I mean, does your plan kind of hone in on those sorts of areas where, you know, people do have genuine concerns about their livelihoods in a kind of post, um, post-coal post world, for, for want of a better term, um, in terms of, uh, I guess, getting people on board to become accustomed to looking to these new solutions and jobs? for the future? Yeah, look, I think um, in this report in particular, we focused on five case studies for the Hunter region as an example of exactly what you're talking about. Um, our Last year, we actually published two transition plans um, for different locations around Australia. One was the Northern Territory, which is, you know, basically at the time that we were doing our research, it was being pushed very hard towards the shale gas industry as the only solution to their economic woes. And we also wrote a plan for Collie in Western Australia, which was the southwest of the Western Australian energy grid, and looked at, well, what would be the opportunities for those coal workers in Collie, those 1,200 coal workers in Collie, to have jobs if the Swiss, the southwest interconnected system decarbonised. So we found that in both cases that renewable energy could just drive an incredibly strong economy. And in our million jobs plan here, we're showing work in progress, really. BZD's been going to be engaged for the next two years in the Hunter region, looking at that diversification plan. And these case studies in the million jobs plan are a little taste of how far we are through that process. And your plan, um, your plan really clearly shows that fossil fuels aren't where the jobs are. And we actually spoke about the resources sector recently on this show and learnt that it is, though, where the export earnings are coming from for Australia. I suppose we've um, swapped the sheeps back for for mining. Uh, Can we spark export sectors through your plan? Are you seeing that perhaps, you know, more high-end manufacturing might replace some of those export earnings if we do shift away from some of the more dirty industries? Well, I think that there's there's always opportunities to do better in mining. So with our research, we're showing that there's actually good opportunities in new energy metals mining. So we're really looking to lithium and to other types of precious metals that are needed to make a battery industry. With Australia's incredible renewable energy, we could actually repower our mine sites with renewables. 
so we can make them healthier places to work as well as, you know, do better in other environmental practices and better engagement with First Nations people in our mining processes. But with that renewable energy, we can build more than what the mine needs and we can actually start the downstream processing on in Australia instead of sending it all offshore as raw material, allowing others to upscale that and to add value to that product. And then we buy it back. That's the current situation. Why shouldn't we use reliable and affordable renewable energy to add value to our own minerals before and then export um, higher value products? That's the solution when we look at those export opportunities. It's not about moving away from exports. It's about adding the value and capturing the value of our, of our minerals and of our export potential onshore before we sell it. We're speaking with Heidi Lee from Beyond Zero Emissions, all about their One Million Jobs Plan, which um, charts kind of a range of ways that Australia can emerge from a post-pandemic world and, and kickstart some new industries in the process, um, built uh, partly at least on, on renewable energy and um, a sustainable, uh, broader Australian um, society and, and, and sector. Um, as listeners can probably hear, this is an, an optimistic plan that you've laid out and you kind of, you know, providing some solutions that seem um, quite achievable. But we know that there's been reports and, and things such as Roscano's book, for example, that, um, you know, go out into the public domain but don't always result in, in immediate changes in terms of policy reform and that kind of thing. What do you see as, as some of the, the barriers to this? I mean, I know you've kind of taken, uh, you know, it upon yourselves to be optimistic, but, but where do the impediments lie? Where are the barriers that need to be overcome? What we're really looking for is to unlock the political inertia in this space. The reason that our plan is focused on jobs and it's focused on the economic opportunities here and why you're saying, like, it's so optimistic, it's because the projects that decarbonise the economy are the same ones that give you the most jobs, that give you the best um, economic return and set up our economy for the best long-term future. So it's actually an entirely rational approach to this. With this, we believe that by bringing together this, these projects with this lens over the top of them, we're able to show that there are ways through this inertia, ways through this political um, hot potato that we've created over the last decade or so in Australia around making um, clean energy policy at the centre of what we, um, how we approach our future with a view like this that shows you the kind of end goal, kind of Australia that we can have. These are the projects, these are the places we can work and these are the solutions that are right here for the taking. It's always been a really tough um, position to look at this and think, oh my gosh, the disruption in moving these sectors of the economy from fossils to renewables, gosh, it's going to be so hard. We're already in the middle of this disruption. We're right now, we are already suffering. A lot of Australians are having a very, very hard time right now. Right now is the time to step back out of this. It's already hard. Let's just leapfrog this whole idea of transition and winding down fossil fuels. They're already down. Let's just step straight into a renewable-powered future. And uh, do you, I mean, you know, climate change does feature in your report, but really it's framed around jobs. Do you think that might, that approach by looking at it from the perspective of jobs uh, when we have certainly the National Cabinet focusing very much on jobs is, is likely to make it more successful, um, Heidi? Yeah, we really do, yes. So the idea that we, you know, we know that opinion polls show that Australian people very much believe in climate, climate and climate action, but do you think that we can rally more comprehensively around job creation? This is the Venn diagram of opportunity, really, isn't it? Because no matter where you sit on what you believe or don't believe about what's causing, you know, extreme weather events and, and why, you know, the climate is changing the way it is, you can come back to some solutions just make sense no matter from where you are sitting and what your perspective is. They always look good when you find those opportunities that help people in regional areas have strong communities, have diverse economies and actually give us an opportunity to get ahead in an overall global trend towards zero emissions. We've got major international companies choosing locations. They're actually sitting there in head offices all over the world choosing the right country to make that investment, to bring their their, um, jobs and to bring their um, business and their economics. So we want to set Australia up to be that location of choice 
when it comes to what what we choose to, to have next. Let's be that location of choice. Let's have that affordable, reliable energy. Let's be the place where you can bring heavy industry, bring energy-intensive activities because of the affordability and the reliability of what um, we're powering our economy with. This is a major opportunity for Australia, and I think that no matter where you sit, you can look towards this and think yes yeah, and say yes to jobs, yes to um, investment, and yes to a strong economic future. Everything else, it doesn't matter why. Let's just agree on these three things and move forward. Well, if um, passion is what's going to make this successful, then um, you've got that in spades. So all the best, um, Heidi, with regards to um, getting the ideas in your plan out there into the public. And it's been great having you on Triple R. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, Heidi Lee, she's project lead for the One Million Jobs Plan. It's out through Beyond Zero Emissions. They're a think tank and you can uh, find the whole plan on their website. Uh, And it's, you know, in plain English, it's eminently readable. And, uh, yeah, I commend it to you if this sparked an interest. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. It's been a confronting week for all of us and most particularly those who endured so, so-called so hard lockdown in the Flemington and North Melbourne public housing towers. Hundreds of people have rallied together in support of those residents, including Remy, prolific, a prolific musician who's well known to many in the Triple R family. He's been part of the volunteer effort to ensure food and other goods get in. Um, one tower is still in hard lockdown, but residents from the other eight are now in stage three restrictions like the rest of metropolitan Melbourne. Remy recorded an interview with one of the residents, Najat Musa, who's now out of hard lockdown. And before we um, um, chat live with Anthony Kelly, who's with the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre and also the Police Accountability Project, we're going to play a com- an excerpt of the conversation that Remy had with Najat Musa. Um, the rest of this uh, interview will be posted on the Triple R website. Daniel Andrews said that there will be medical and health professionals provided alongside police. What has been your experience of that to this date? Um, yeah, so I actually heard that. I heard him saying, um, the conference saying that there's going to be over 500 police officers and um, as well as medical practitioners. Within the first two days, I saw no medical practitioners. Um, looking across my, looking outside my window across to the other building, mm. um, I did see like people in nurses uniform and stuff um, walking in and out I think they were people the ones conducting the tests so we didn't have any actual mental health or social workers or community workers in on the estate um, as no one was really allowed in or out it was really difficult for anyone to come in and out and even though they should have provided it and obviously if they provided the um, mental health and medical practitioners Mm. they would have been able to come and visit each resident you guys have really been looking out for yourselves during COVID um, before any of this ha- um, happened. So can you speak on like the, I guess, the precautionary measures you've been taking um, and what the government has provided you, I guess, to help during this time period? So um, during the first wave, um, around March and April, end of March uh, April, and I don't remember how long it lasted, but anyway, during the first wave, um, obviously, like, our circumstances are different in regards to social distancing because we do live in a tight in a tight building where the lifts are very necessary for residents to you know to maneuver around the building yeah. so um, obviously we had to take extra precautions in regards to um, how many people were allowed in the lifts at a time um, just getting the information around hand sanitizers like hygiene wise like it, it was kind of hard because we didn't really have support from the outside in regards to, um, like, you know, like looking after ourselves and the, um, the disinfection, dis- disinfection of the building. Mm. Um, so I, me and I, like, I kind of a couple of other, the re- uh, a couple of the other residents on the estate had rung up um, the department of housing um, and the DHSS and just, you know, requested that we got requested that we got um, our lifts and laundries sanitized and disinfected our um we got hand sanitizers and ppe wear and we um and that information to be translated and posters to be handed around so people are aware of what's going on and the seriousness of it Mm. and the response from the um, department was 
they literally um, put up a hand sanitizer, like a the disposal ones, and they just pretty much put put it up in each building. Yeah, and just one. Once that ran out, yeah, just one. And once that ran out, they never filled it up, and it literally ran out within like a couple hours. And they filled it up every three to four weeks, literally. Um, and every time we called them, they'll just be like, we're doing our best. We're doing the best we can. Yes, yes, it's going to happen. Yes, this is going to happen. Yes, 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 yes. And it was all, it was rubbish, really. Like, we had to look after ourselves. We, you know, we we, we try to social distance in the lift as much as we can. It is pretty hard because we only have two lifts and there's about the over, I don't know how many people that live in each building. Mm. Um, so it's quite difficult, honestly, and especially because the apartment's actually not too big and we have families of like, like my neighbor has like six kids, it's her and her husband and they're all under the age of, under the age of eight. So on the day of the second day of the lockdown, we had police inside the building, of course. And I came down and we had a table full of everything that I've been asking for. It was just ridiculous. And like, there were face masks, gloves, purses in um, different languages. Um, it was just hand sanitizers. Everything that the community has been asking for, it was there within a couple of hours. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And so, and this, so this, so all of those social distancing measures in the lift, like all of that stuff, that was community enforced. Like you weren't supposed to do that. You weren't encouraged to do that. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. We were told to social distance within the lift, like so long after. I think it's like three months after we were already, we've already been doing it. Yeah. It's like, yeah. We knew what was right. Like we're not stupid, you know, like we know what's right. We're not going to go into a packed lift when there's a pandemic going around. And that's uh, Naja Musa speaking with musician Remy last Friday. Um, Naja was one of many who enjoyed the hard lockdown in the Kensington Public Housing Tower last week. And the full interview, um, which is about 20 minutes long, will be on the Triple R website later today. And things are changing so fast um, that we've asked Anthony Kelly to join us. He's exec um, officer of the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre Police Accountability Project. And the legal centre is based in Flemington and last week called for a drastic redesign of future emergency lockdown procedures, including the immediate withdrawal of police from the housing estates and the COVID health response in general. And Anthony, it's great to have you back on Triple R. And you heard what resident Najat has just said around her experience is it common are you um, hearing that support did arrive uh, and with police escort though rather than than earlier yeah absolutely that was a very common account Um, I I was describing it pretty soon afterwards as like a Kafkaesque nightmare for the residents where um, this combination of uh, uh, all the, the the this disaster response, I guess, took place in a context of decades of systemic neglect of public housing in Victoria. It took place in the context of the disc- discriminatory approaches and the stigma of public housing residents that they, they face on a daily basis and from, from both agencies and government institutions and authorities and the, and the general public. And also the policing, the decades of um, discriminatory policing that um, we've highlighted in the area over many years. And, um, yeah, one of the key dynamics um, that we heard, of course, was the extraordinary level of organisation from within the residents, from within the towers. Uh, Almost immediately, residents were working together, networking, setting up Facebook and WhatsApp groups and self-organising in just such an impressive way. Um, and yeah, that was that, and that was out of necessity because the only co- um, contact uh, once the sudden lockdown kicked in, of course, was through police. And the police was, focus was wasn't a health response; it was to enforce the lockdown essentially. And so residents were were faced with no other option to get information and to to start looking after each other and to seek seek all the basic relief efforts was to organise internally, and then reach out to other to um, community agencies that they knew and trusted. Yeah, and, and it's very easy to understand, uh, you know, through um, the efforts of the Police Accountability Project and, um, and, you know, some of the cases that have gone before the courts and so on and what we know about racial profiling um, of these sort of particular communities, how, you know, distressing and, and um, 
worrying really the the optics of having 500 police suddenly you know circling buildings and and that sort of thing but what are some arguments that that I've heard um, that you know the police are more easily mobilized for example by the government than um, than health workers for example and so this was something they effectively could only do very quickly um, through the police force rather than than others who might have been able to provide those sorts of services that were very much needed and, and more needed. Yeah, that's right. Effectively, they're the only 24-hour response that the, the state had. Um, however, it's, it was um, the the it's become apparent really clearly as the this crisis has rolled on that there there were other ways to do this lockdown. Um, so there were agencies and volunteers that were mobilised incredibly quickly. There were other um, agencies that could have been brought into play to. Um, take an approach that was more informative and more supportive and uh, more, more conducive of a cooperative and collaborative and partnership approach to residents and local um, community agencies than the, the sort of that carceral lockdown response that the, um, that the police uh, enforced. Yeah, I've, I've heard people say, you know, um, I mean, there is an opportunity for, for all kinds of housing, but particularly um, public housing where it, they're inadequate for, for pandemic conditions by the sounds of it, um, that we you know, have the equivalent of a fire drill for such a, a, a situation as was faced last week. Do you think that we're going to see things done differently now, Anthony? I would hope so. The amount of um, focus on this um, hard lockdown scenario bodes well. The, there's a lot of mistakes that became apparent really quickly and that were highlighted by local agencies and the residents themselves. And um, we've, you know, we've communicated uh, directly to the Chief Health Officer and Government very clearly that there were problems with the way that the detention orders themselves were written in such a way they were called detention orders. Um, so the detention aspect was very very stark right from the very beginning. But there was a section in the detention orders that allowed for residents to, to uh, seek permission to exit the building for care and compassionate grounds, for uh, medical reasons and for emergencies. But the, the nightmare, of course, was that there was no way for residents to actually seek that permission. They would ask a police officer down in the foyers and the police officer would say, go and call the, the DHS 1-800 number. The 1-800 number would say, we don't know, go and talk to a police officer. And this continued for three or four days, really, until systems were worked out on the ground where authorised officers were able to to give permission at a much at a, at a clearer level. So... So many residents were trapped in these really horrific scenarios where they couldn't get they couldn't get um, support for really urgent uh, medical matters. They had children that were um, they were separated from babies in hospital, uh, needing um, um, insulin and other medical attention, and being essentially uh, neglected and ignored by this system that hadn't been set up uh, to. Um, uh, to allow any uh, this sort of uh, any sort of effective response. Yeah, it felt like the the whole situation really showed up the lack of. I don't know, understanding or connection between government agencies and the residents of those towers. I mean, the, the DHHS was was tweeting out for people um, of the community to get in touch with residents and, and that sort of thing. And you can understand to some extent why, because the community mobilised so quickly to provide essential food um, for people at very short notice when there were issues with the food that was provided by the government and so on. But it feels like there were, there were so many things exposed by this that, that really should go to the broader issue of, of how public housing is managed Managed and how those residents' needs are kind of taken into account. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of um, very clear dynamics that were common in humanitarian disaster relief responses in conflict zones or uh, in disasters uh, everywhere, really, where the um, where, where military and uh, armed actors act as barriers to the de delivery and availability of relief, where international NGOs, often uh, uh, Western-dominated, um, can cause, um, can, can undermine or reduce local capacities for relief. And, we, and the humanitarian sector is aware of all these dynamics and mitigates against them, but we saw all these come into play in Flemington. So the, the ability of local agencies to provide 
um, responsive, culturally appropriate uh, food and relief supplies directly to families that they were in contact with was hampered by the state authorities, by the police and the Department of Human Services. And there was discrimination, essentially, at every single point of, of the process where um, r residents were generally trying to, um, to seek assistance appropriately and local agencies, and the, the one that stands out is the Australian Muslim Social Services Australia, our AMSA, who was ideally located, had mobilised incredibly impressively right from the word go, had an army of volunteers, had resources and donations um, well laid out in there, qu quite a large warehouse directly across from the North Melbourne Flats. And yet they were hampered at every single delivery, sometimes food that would have taken 15 minutes to get into the, into the flats would take four or five or sometimes longer to reach there because they had to go through this labyrinthine uh, uh, bureaucracy of, of ignorance and, and racism at every point, and they weren't recognised. They were essentially made invisible by the, uh, by the department and, the more, uh, the, and government responses. And, um, yes, yeah, the, the idea of um, supporting and engaging local agencies really didn't take, take hold until, um, you know, day three or four, and it's only now, finally, AMPS has been provided with the lead agency status in providing relief to the uh, Alfred, ta Alfred Towers that are still in hard lockdown. Does it, that also reflect pretty poorly, um, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, on the um, kind of community policing and, and police's role beyond just law enforcement? Because, I mean, I, I drove past there um, during the lockdown and, and saw, you know, there were, there were many police officers seemingly standing around. I mean, I'm sure some had, had things to do, um, but also I've heard anecdotally that there were, um, you know, local council workers as well as volunteers involved in actually getting the food to the building, not directly to people's doors, but just to the bottom of the lift and so on. Is there an argument that the police could have been much more involved in actually servicing people than it appears they were, at least at those initial stages? Yeah, so there's a, a, a lot of this discussion about why the police were there, and I think w there needs to be some drilling down about the rationale. And the, In the Premier's statement initially, they, they talked about facilitating the Chief Health Officer's orders, providing community safety and, and order, and in, um, enforcing the, the detention orders. So there was definitely an enforcement and a safety aspect, and that safety feeds into this bias that it's a dangerous location. It's, it's not. It's... It, um, it's one of those myths and stereotypes around public housing um, throughout, you know, throughout Victoria. Um, so there's, there's an argument that they, that they weren't necessary, certainly at the level, beyond any doubt, at the level that they were deployed in. Um, and then their role as well um, could have easily been take, taken over by um, other agencies and so the fire brigade and SES and the council workers were brought in to do various deliveries. There was a protocol that all food deliveries up the floors of the towers had to be accompanied by two police officers for some reason. Again, it might have been a perception of uh, risk and safety, again, a biased one. And that's arguably unnecessary for the local community workers to go up um, with, a, with appropriate PPE and um, to deliver food directly to the door could have been done much more s smoothly and easily without a police escort. But the powers that be, the Department of Human Services, decided that um, police escorts were necessary, and that delayed deliveries for hours, literally for hours. Dear Anthony Kelly's with us, um, Exec Officer over at the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre and the Police Accountability Project. And we won't keep you much longer, Anthony, but I, um, I suppose how different is this Monday compared to last Monday? And I, I suppose many of us have been really, I suppose, heartened to hear directly from residents in all sorts of media through this really kind of, as you say, Kafkaesque time. Um, and I suppose not to spend too much time on blame, but looking for accountability. Are we going to see government and, and the various agencies um, accept advice from, from yourselves and other groups uh, asking and re requesting a redesign of the coronavirus um, response in future, the he a health response rather than one that is... Um, uh, the response with with on the ground police. I'd like to think so. The 
the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission very early on specified that there were clear human rights of the residents that weren't being observed by this current lockdown, and that was, and they did a, a, a lot of advocacy around how important they were and mechanisms in which they could be observed. The Victorian Ombudsman also has investigative powers and oversight and complaint handling powers over these sort of responses, and they're very actively involved at the moment. We're still seeing delays and problems with uh, the residents in the Alfred Crescent to get access to exercise and fresh air, etc., which has been promised. It's, it's taken three days for that sort of process to be underway, but it's underway, and there's still a lot of assertive advocacy that has needed over, over the last, literally the last 24 hours by residents and legal advocates to see some of these things in place. But I'd like to, I'd, I think there is an urgent need for an inquiry, a really thorough one, to make sure that, um, that we don't repeat the mistakes if other public housing or any other towers or confined areas need to be um, uh, you know, need to be responded to as a, some sort of lockdown or a quarantine scenario. Um, there, and again, advocates have long pointed out the risks of uh, prisons or detention centres or even the hotels where refugees are detained in for these sort of lockdowns, for these sort of outbreaks to occur, um, they could, again, they could be disastrous. And if we see a similar sort of neglectful and um, ill-thought-through response, um, we're going to be in the same position again, where human rights and, well and the well-being of residents is just neglected. Well, thank you for um, speaking with us again on Triple R, Anthony, and um, this virus... We're now realising, I think, more than ever that he's going to be with us for a very long time indeed and we need to get these things right. So thanks for um, spending time explaining it to us on Triple R and, of course, some state, you know, lots of programs on this station will be speaking to residents and so forth. So um, we'll keep across it. Thanks and we'll speak again. Thanks, heaps. Um, Anthony Kelly, he's Exec Officer over at the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre and the Police Accountability Project. And you can read statements on their website if you're interested in finding out more about that. Triple Ah. And one of the biggest musicals of all time has come to town, albeit on the small screen, and that's Hamilton, which first hit the stage a decade ago in New York. It was, of course, written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who also plays the lead of Alexander Hamilton, um, one of the founders of the American Constitution, in the recorded version, which is now available on Disney+. And Beyond the impressive spectacle, um, we're wondering how relevant it feels to Australian audiences right now, especially in the wake of Black Lives Matter. And uh, to kind of toss this idea around where we've got Professor of Politics at La Trobe University, Dennis Altman, with us. He's been musing on this for the conversation and he's on the phone. And I have to say, I, um, I mean, we are in a really interesting era to have this, um, you know, Massive musical hit on our small screen, and that's Hamilton. And I, I was looking at a map of Victoria the other day, Dennis, and saw Hamilton. And one of my daughters was like, Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> and it was actually the town. And I suppose I wonder if that's an indicator of how per pervasive this musical and American kind of foundation story is right now. Look, I think one of the oddest things is that it's been brought to us by the Disney Channel. Um, because if anything epitomises mainstream America, it surely has been Disney over the last, what, century probably. Um, and it's fascinating that they see in this a, a massive global market. They paid a lot of money to get the rights uh, to show this. And, of course, they were very lucky in a sense because it's come on at a time when theatres across the world are closed. And why do you think this has proved such an incredible hit, um, you know, for the past, what is it, five years or so that it's been running? Look, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. It is an extraordinary theatrical event. I mean, clearly, I haven't seen it as a theatrical event. I've only seen it on a small screen, I'm afraid, but I have been familiar with it uh, for some time. I've, I've uh, gone through the music and the words. Clearly, when you see it, it is... It has an energy and a, it grasps people in a way that probably feels revolutionary. I think the other reason is the time that it came from. Hamilton was very much a product of the Obama years 
in fact, the first public performance of any song from Hamilton was done at the Obama White House. It therefore came into the United States at a time when there was a sense of optimism, a sense of the possibility of the American dream, and it's continued into a period where millions of Americans are watching aghast as their president seems to be demolishing that dream. So in a sense, I think the combination of the timing and the sheer energy and vivacity of the program, uh, of, of, of the musical, uh, ensured it became a massive hit. And do you think it stands up in this era, um, Dennis? Look, I have mixed feelings about it. it. It's an extraordinarily clever picture of the founding of the American Republic. Um, and it brings to light characters who most people would have only the slightest sense of. I mean, how many people in Australia, probably like your daughter, uh, only know of Hamilton now because of the musical? In fact, the, the two central characters in the musical, Alexander and um, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, the vice president who at the end kills Hamilton in a duel, are not thought of by and large when we think of the great founders of the American Revolution. Um, so in that sense, I think it's a remarkable lesson in American political history. Um, there, there are ongoing debates about how accurate it is. Uh, my sense is that you don't go to a musical for a uh, graduate-level history lesson, and in a sense it is remarkably accurate. It does capture some of the central points of American mythology. But I would stress it's American mythology, not necessarily American reality. Yeah, and some criticisms that I've read have been um, around, I guess, the way that it, it doesn't, according to some, uh, appropriately deal with the issue of slavery. And, and perhaps that's been um, maybe missed by many because of its, its casting of predominantly non-white actors in the role of, you know, founding fathers of America and, and key figures in the revolution. What do you make of, of that type of critique of Hamilton? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there is a critique, and I have some sympathy with it, that says, look, the, there are two things that are radical about this musical. One is it is the first big Broadway musical that makes considerable use of rap and hip-hop and does so extremely well. Secondly, it's, it appears radical because the iconic figure, someone like George Washington, is sung by an actor of colour. But if we, if we look beyond that, it doesn't actually challenge the mainstream narrative of the American Revolution. It doesn't actually stress the reality that the American Revolution was made in the name of freedom, but the freedom only extended to white men. And I think there is a legitimate criticism. Uh, now, there are various references, if you, if you listen carefully, uh, there are various references to Hamilton's opposition to slavery. Mm, yeah. But it is certainly not a main theme, and in fact, I think the reality is that Hamilton, Hamilton would have called himself a political realist. He didn't like slavery, but if he had to accept slavery to get the union, he was perfectly happy to do so. And, I mean, you, you highlight that it does fit neatly with, with Disney Plus and the kind of Disney storytelling, which, you know, some are saying is getting kind of better as that, that company um, grows older, but that idea of you can be born um, out of the United States, you can be born and you know, be an orphan and still make it big um, does feel very Disney. I mean, how accurate is that storytelling? Oh, it's not just Disney, is it? That, that is basically, that is, I think, the basic plot of the American musical. You know, you go back to those American musicals in the 30s where Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney are making lemonade in small towns on their way to being hits on Broadway. Um, this is the same thing, but in politics. Uh, Hamilton, yes, he's, he's an orphan, grew up in the West Indies, but it's important to recognise, because when we talk about West Indies, we tend to think of people of colour. But in fact, Hamilton is of Scottish origin, comes to the US, becomes a protégé of George Washington, and makes it. Uh, and I can see the attraction of that, but again, I think one has to remember it is 
he makes it in a way that is very much dependent on his race. Had he been a black West Indian, there's no way that he would have risen to become Secretary of the Treasury uh, in the 1790s. It's interesting to, to think about this, as you alluded to at the beginning of the conversation, um, of this first being staged during um, the Obama presidency. I think it was first staged in January 20, um, 2015, if I'm correct, mm-hmm. so a couple of years before Trump was inaugurated. And I mean, it was a much more hopeful time, a much a time where I guess that, that ideal of the American dream might have been seen as more, more palatable, more achievable um, for people you know, in those times. But there have been works of literature um, going back a long way that have, that have kind of interrogated the American dream in a more pointed way than this musical does. Do you feel like at all, given the current situation with what's happening in, in the United States and kind of you know, unravelling of, of civil society and so on, that it might potentially allow us to more critically interrogate some of the, the darker undersides of those types of ideals? to me that, that knowing history is always a good thing. I mean, that, that's, you know, a pretty cliched thing to say. But the reality is that most people, and including most Americans who, who go to see Hamilton, will learn a great deal about the way in which the United States came into being. And along with that, they're exposed to the idea that the American dream is not simply about making money, uh, that it does contain within it certain concepts of freedom and liberty. That must be a positive thing in the current environment. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, there are limits to what a big Broadway musical can achieve. And I got into writing about Hamilton essentially because I got very interested in thinking about the way in which there's a whole tradition in musicals of dealing with politics. Politics is a big theme of musicals, and American musicals have often, in fact, been quite critical and have undermined uh, the status quo. I mean, something as well-known and now probably seen as soppy and sentimental as South Pacific in its time was, in fact, a radical uh, piece of production because it showed on stage interracial love. That was sufficient to have it banned in certain theatres in the South. Mm. And that tradition is, I think, a tradition that Hamilton comes out of. I'm not sure, in fact, there's anything as radical in Hamilton uh, as there was in South Pacific, odd as that might sound to a contemporary audience. I mean, you've taught Australian history in the United States and I suppose bring that perspective. Do you you think it's, um, I mean, beyond teaching us, and I learnt a lot um, watching Hamilton and it got me interested and I've hit a few Wikipedia pages, Mm -hmm. I must confess, Mm -hmm. um, since watching it, but do you think it's it's going to, uh, I don't know, um, prompt people to to dig deeper and and learn more, do you think, once they they see the production, if they do? Probably, well, well, not directly. I mean, I'm sure people will do what you're doing, Carl. Yeah, you know, I think looking, looking, we've all got used to looking up Wikipedia pages. And, of course, you can do that when you're watching it at home. You don't easily do it when you're sitting in the theatre. Um, but if you think about the other big political musicals of the last, say, two decades, uh, going back to Avita, I don't know how many people who know the song Don't Cry For Me Argentina actually went off and checked out the career of Eva Perón. I don't know how many people who fooled to see Les Miserables actually went back and read Victor Hugo and tried to understand the politics of 19th century France. I mean, most people see musicals as entertainment. Um, What I find interesting is the extent to which that entertainment does in fact draw on major political conflict. And in that sense, Hamilton fits within, I think, a very strong and important tradition of a political musical. To what extent do you think Australian audiences engage with that aspect of it? I mean, do you think it, it is the story of Hamilton that people are attracted to? I mean, given they you know, probably haven't been able to actually see it. Or is it more the, the kind of cultural moment of, of hearing um, you know, songs from the musical, uh, perhaps? I mean, I know I was, I was hearing them all over the place when it was, um, when it was first staged. And this kind of idea that it was a, a new approach to, to musical that sort of used hip-hop and, and, and rap um, which hadn't, you know, really been done on a wide scale before. Yeah. Look, that's certainly part of it. 
I think that a lot of people, um, particularly younger people, think of musicals as the sort of thing you go to with your your maiden aunt. You know, they're seen as soft, middle-class, middle-brow entertainment. And in that sense, the musical innovation of Hamilton does, I think, attract people. I'd also say that the lyrics are extraordinarily clever. And while um, Miranda does use rap and hip-hop, he uses a whole range of musical styles. Mm. He also uses a whole range of poetic styles. In fact, there is quite strong influence in in Hamilton from Gilden the Sullivan. Now, Gilden the Sullivan might have gone out of fashion, but it's interesting that um, things like the appearance of George III and the song that George III sings is actually very much based, I think, and indeed there's some evidence from what Miranda said, um, on the way Gilbert and Sullivan did patter songs. So I think, yes, the music attracts people. I think the other thing we have to say is, you know, there's been very clever marketing. Um, And in terms of an Australian audience, I suspect most people in Australia have only become aware of Hamilton in the last month, uh, it's been essentially what the Disney Channel have used to launch themselves on the Australian market. Now, you know, good luck to them. I'd rather they launched it with Hamilton than with a rerun of Bambi. Well, very true. And um, on my trip into the station today, um, that basically the only billboard posters were the ones about Hamilton. So they got a lot of space and a lot of um, yeah space mm-hmm. that they can fill at the moment. Not so much competition, unfortunately. Well, they do. And, you know, they also spent, allegedly, they spent um, 75 million US for the rights. Now, that's a lot of money. They have to recoup that. And I have to say that the, the, the media have fallen over themselves to help them recoup that. You know, we're doing a little bit right now, aren't we? And presumably, <laughs> there, there's somebody listening to us out there in, in shutdown Melbourne who's going to get excited. And, you know, I'd encourage you to do that. I think that as a spectacle, it is quite extraordinary. The staging, uh, the performances, the sheer speed and energy of the production is quite remarkable. And one of the things that really struck me when I did start watching it, admittedly on a very small screen, I'm afraid, is how dense it is. It's actually quite hard to follow everything that's going on. He has packed an enormous amount of concrete information into the lyrics of this musical, much more than you would normally expect. Well, um, I'm glad that you wrote about it. So we had an excuse to talk to you again, Dennis. I love um, having you on Triple R. Thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. You can always have me on Triple R. Okay, well, let's think of another reason. (laughs) Next week it is. We'll catch you then. (laughs) Especially if I could do it from my home and don't have to cross Melbourne in the middle of a rainstorm. That's true. I mean, I think it's a bit clearer out there today, which is um, still cold, but at least that's something. Um, We'll chat to you again soon. Terrific. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, Dennis. I'm Dennis Altman. He's Professor of Politics over at La Trobe University, and you can catch his uh, article on the Conversation website, and I really did enjoy it. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.